0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the crisis in Afghanistan is intensifying as Taliban forces have seized two more provincial capitals. Canadian special forces, along with troops from the U.S. and Britain, are now returning to Afghanistan to evacuate embassy staff. Ora Brown, professor of political science and international relations at the University of Toronto, will join us to discuss this. Prime Minister Trudeau planning to ask for an election this coming Sunday, with the country staring at a fourth wave of the pandemic. Is this the right time? And U.S. allegations against Meng Wanzhou are unclear, says a Supreme Court judge during the Huawei executive's extradition hearing. We'll talk about those implications. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Events are unfolding uh, in, in not a very good way in Afghanistan these days. Uh, as you've heard on the news this morning, Canadian military are preparing to evacuate Canadians from Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. is going to be sending troops in for a similar exercise, as is the U.K. Joining us to talk about this is a Professor Oral Brown. Professor Brown is with the International Relations and Senior Member of the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I i, I got to ask you, seeing what's happening here, and I, as I saw some of the events unfolding and the descriptions of some of the things that are going on with the, the Canadians still, still there and the Americans, it brought back memories of, of Saigon. Uh, it was, the U.S. was leaving uh, the Vietnam War way back when, and I think we all have that picture etched in our minds of the helicopters on the roof and people trying to jump in there. Uh, and, and it looked chaotic, but at the same time very necessary. Are we repeating that sort of exercise here?
1: We can't be sure, but... Uh There are disturbing signs that we are moving in that direction. If this had been a natural disaster, uh, then we are no longer at the rescue stage. We're almost uh, uh, at the stage where we are trying to recover bodies. It seems that the West has given up on Afghanistan. You still have statements from Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that they are committed to negotiations that they want to have relations with the Afghan government, but there's no evidence on the ground that the Taliban are really interested in negotiations when they're rapidly taking over the entire country.
0: Uh, well, that's the thing I found rather interesting. I saw, uh, you know, Blinken's comments as well. Uh, and we're told right now that, as you just mentioned, I mean, you know, when, when, I think when we talked a couple of weeks ago, the, the, you know, at that particular point, the Taliban had not even taken any o- overriding differential capitals. Uh, they apparently are rolling right across the country now at, at lightning speed and getting what they want. There's, there's no there's no impetus for these guys to even come to the negotiating table, is there?
1: Exactly. What is the incentive for the Taliban at this uh, moment? What is the downside to continuing this kind of military action? And we already see in areas that they have taken over that they are engaging in the same kind of brutality that characterized the Taliban regime before. So this bodes ill for the entire Afghan people. In the case of Canada, we are looking at a relatively small player, but what's occurring speaks to the far larger tragedy of the entire Afghan people who are being abandoned, when the United States basically said, this is the date, we're leaving, this is what's going to happen, the signal to the Taliban was, all you have to do is wait until we're in the last stages, and this is yours for the taking. And that is what they appear to be doing. So all these statements coming from uh, the Biden administration have something sorted about them. It is not merely ironic. It is something that reflects a callous kind of calculation where the Americans are saying that, yes, American lives matter, but Afghan lives do not.
0: It's, it's a reminder of, of that phrase, and I know we've heard it before, because you know, we heard it back when the, the Russians tried to invade Afghanistan, uh, even when this, uh, this exercise went underway so many years ago as well. Uh, the, the phrase used by the Afghanis oftentimes is, you may have all the clocks, but we have the time. And this is the Taliban, again, doing what a lot of people predicted they were going to do, is just wait this out, they're going to leave eventually, and we'll get what we want. That seems to be happening.
1: That is what's happening. The Taliban, of course, survived. And they were aided mightily by Pakistan. The Taliban would not have been able to do this but for Pakistan. And Western governments, for various reasons, have not put the kind of pressure on the Pakistani government that they should have done years ago. When you spoke to Afghan leaders over the past uh, decade or more, they would tell you that for them to be able to win the war against the Taliban... You had to deal with Pakistan, that Pakistan played this nefarious role of certain intelligence services within Pakistan, which may have acted independently at times from the government, but usually uh, acted in coordination with the government. They played a seminal role because Pakistan viewed Afghanistan as the front line against India. Now, of course, there are those who are saying that, again, in terms of irony, Pakistan once assuming that the Taliban take over, they may have problems with the the Taliban themselves. Uh, They may have created a kind of or helped uh, get into position, a kind of Frankenstein's uh, monster. And uh, that uh, would be a perverse irony, but it certainly would not help the, the Afghan people. We must not forget that it's not that the Afghan people had no voice. It's not that the Afghan people had no aspirations. It's not that the Afghan people are predisposed to wanting to live in an oppressive regime. They went to the polls time and again to indicate that they wanted to have a representative government. They sent their children to school. They want to have girls educated. They would like to have women be able to participate in regular activities. This has been demonstrated over and over, but they needed help. And yes, help was given and often it was done in a very inefficient way, and uh, uh, there were many, many mistakes made, and certainly various Afghan governments were guilty of rampant corruption, so there's blame to go all around. But this was almost a kind of coincidence of things going the wrong way, various governments unwilling to take the right steps, the lack of perseverance on the part of the West. But ultimately, it is the Afghan people who pay the highest price. And so now we're trying to rescue a small number. And what we're debating is, can we get a few hundred translators who work for Canada out? The Danes are getting some people out. The Americans are getting some people out. But this is a very tiny percentage of the population. Perhaps these are the most vulnerable elements of that population. And it is right that something should be done to get them out as soon as possible, because we can imagine what their fate would be like once the Taliban take over. But what happens to the rest of the population?
0: That's that's the question I think a lot of us are asking these days. I've only got about a minute left here, but uh, just based on your comments, I was going to ask you this, but I, I I think I already know the answer based on what you just said, though, Professor. Uh, those pro- progressive moves that uh, that the troops have been able to do, as you say, uh, free elections, uh, you know, education, getting women uh, status w- within society, uh, are, is it all for not now if the Taliban take over, as they seem to be doing?
1: It looks really negative at the moment. Whatever they've taken over... Even though uh, they now are better at social media and they say, no, we're not going to engage in retaliation, that is not uh, what they have done. It's almost as if it's the nature of the Taliban movement, that they can't help themselves. It is an inherently brutal, medieval, uh, repressive movement, and it's very doubtful that they would change. Professor,
0: always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Take care. Professor Aura Brown from University of Toronto with the uh, Munk School of Global Affairs. Sad situation that we'll keep tracking. As we mentioned, Canadian troops will be heading over there to help in the uh, evacuation as American and UK troops as well. So more to come on this story. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister apparently will visit the Governor General on Sunday and ask for Parliament to be dissolved, and uh, that throws us into an election. The uh, speculative date is September 20th for the election. Uh, Now that has yet to be confirmed and won't be for some time, but we all know there are no secrets on Parliament Hill. Just about everything gets uh, leaked to somebody at some time, so we're pretty sure that's going to happen. Uh, There are some concerns about that. Uh, Politically, certainly, we're going to get into it. There are a plethora of perspectives here that we want to cover, but one of them is is public health. Uh, You know, we're talking about a fourth wave now. We're talking about public health concerns and and, and people not getting vaccinated and not enough people getting vaccinated anyway. So hosting an election amid a variant-driven fourth, Wave means safety protocols at polling stations are going to have to be in place. Global's Janie Barocker has the story.
1: Despite case counts of COVID-19 once again climbing in Canada, our country's top doctor is confident that in-person voting can be done safely.
2: We've done many things in society, opened up different spaces and having safety plans in place throughout this pandemic. So there's a lot that's been learned about how to make these voting spaces safe.
1: Elections Canada has been preparing for the possibility of a pandemic vote. It says poll workers will be provided with masks and PPE and physical distancing will be in place at poll polling stations. Cleaning will also happen every hour.
0: Well, we're used to those protocols already, aren't we, from the last year and a half or so, and uh, that's obviously what's going to be happening at polling stations. Uh, Mind you, there's another story that's suggesting that schools are probably not a very good place for polling stations, and and in the past, they have traditionally been used to a great extent as polling stations through the course of the day, maybe not so much here, so it's going to be different uh, on September the 20th. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Peter Grave. Peter is a professor of political science at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, just, uh, no surprise, I guess, to anybody that this was going to happen. And, and, uh, it, what's surprising, I suppose, is, is, uh, that there's still some concern and speculation about this. But this, it's going to be different this year, uh, in a pandemic. And, uh, the other element of this, of course, is, uh, the, the polling that's coming out that's suggesting that about 60% of Canadians don't want an election. Um, just off the top of my head, Peter, I don't remember the last time the majority of Canadians wanted an election anytime.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we get upset that we only get to cast our vote once every four years, and then we think that's too often. So, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, uh, I mean, I guess part of it in this case is that, you know, we have a government that is only not even two years into its mandate, doesn't really seem to have uh, a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, achieving what it wants to achieve in the House. And so I guess part of the start of this election will be a question of whether the government can justify to Canadians, you know, why it's having an election why it's important uh, you know given the sort of the health and safety concerns that, that you
0: started the, the segment with well and and you're always looking i guess for a ballot box question aren't you and, and maybe that staring is right in the face you're right it's the pandemic uh, and the way that it's going to be treated and the way it's going to happen going forward i'm sure that at some point we thought well maybe you're going to be over the worst of this and now we're talking about a fourth wave so it's still going to be front and center in everybody's minds isn't it yeah, I
2: think so. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it will be, you know, a direct question. But at the beginning of the campaign, I think it will increase the pressure on on the uh, on the Liberal Party to justify why it's having this election. And if there's not a good answer, then, you know, particularly Ontario, uh, you know, the the question of the COVID nineteen and the and the virus is perhaps the third top issue, uh, at least in recent Angus Reid polling. And so. You no know, there the you know the liberals might have some difficulty so I, I think it will be important in the first days of the campaign there will no doubt be uh, some you know debate about uh, what's the justification given these health concerns but i suspect within a few days and we'll be into the rest of the campaign
0: uh, there's contrary points of view here on a couple of the polls, I, I just referenced the one that said 60% don't want one there's another one, Abacastad I think it was it was released yesterday, I'm sure you saw Peter uh, 85% of Canadians said well we don't really want one, but we're not really bothered if we're going to get one, that's a very Canadian answer I thought, but I, just, I guess you wonder just how long is the angst going to last There, people trying going to get on with their lives as you've talked about in the past, it's summertime right now and not too many people in this country are in, are in political mode, let alone election mode
2: yeah, I mean, uh, and, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, students going back to school and, uh, you know, and kids going back to school in, in early September. So it may be that public attention won't be really riveted on this campaign. Uh, I mean, it's hard to know, uh, you know, will it be a sleeper campaign that leads to the re-election of the sitting government? Or is there, you know, echoes of David Peterson in 1990 figuring again, uh, you know, he's he's up in the polls, uh, people are sleepy, maybe, you know, it's time to go for re-election early and, you uh, uh, you know, there was a, an anger that he hadn't expected uh, that really fed that campaign. So I'm not, I'm not uh, predicting or expecting that to happen this time, but, you know, there's that, that sense that even if people are a bit sleepy about the campaign, not really that engaged with it, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we should uh, think that the polls that we're seeing now, which we might suggest either, uh, you know, a, a small liberal majority or a strengthened liberal minority, uh, are going to hold when we get to late September.
0: Peter, how much of a factor do you think the the pandemic is going to be? And I mean to the voters. the Politicians are certainly going to have their perspective on this. I get that. But there's some speculation that maybe voter turnout is not going to be as high as it probably should be during a federal election uh, because of the concerns people have for public safety. Uh, and I, I, I juxtapose that point of view, which I've heard a, a number of times over the last 24 hours, uh, with the fact that well, there's, an, a, there's an election going on in Nova Scotia right now. There's one in Newfoundland a few months ago, uh, and that was a bit of a, a dog's breakfast, but I think the weather had m- as much of a factor to do with that as well. Uh, and, then, of course, the U.S. election uh, last November was right in the heat of, of the pandemic, and they had the highest voter turnout in the history of the country. Uh, do people really look at it that way, or are they more driven and more motivated by the, the, the democratic process to say, I want a voice?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see where it's at. I mean, the stakes were high in the United States. I mean, the parties made it, so the stakes were high. Uh, You know, it's less clear in this case uh, how that's going to play out. And I think concern about health and safety will be, you know, uh, taken a bit off the table. Elections Canada has found ways to increase postal voting, so we may see, you know, an increased use of that. Uh, Canadians, we've seen in recent elections, have done a lot of voting in advance. So there's many ways in which the pressure on the polls and, you know, the worry about having to line up for hours with all kinds of other people, it just isn't the story here in Canada. So I don't think that will have a huge impact on the outcome. I think it's more, you know, maybe this lack of excitement about, uh, you know, what, what the election holds. And so there again, I think it's we'll see what our parties do to excite Canadians because, you know, there are a lot of aspects of the pandemic, maybe not the pandemic itself, that will be central to the party's campaigns. I expect the Conservatives to run really heavily on the fact that we can't afford uh, to do very much because of all the money we spent on the campaign, and, and to talk about you know how we have to deal with the, that in deficit. I expect the uh, NDP to come out and say, well, no, really, certain people got rich during this uh, this pandemic, and if we're going to pay for the price of it, we have to tax the rich and redistribute uh, redistribute wealth in this country. You know, will that capture people's uh, attention? And the Liberals in their own right, uh, you know, through last year's throne speech of, you know, promised uh, an ambitious program to uh, relaunch Canada after, after the pandemic. Um, so, again, how will, how will Canadians respond to those different positions? Will that light a fire under them? Again, we'll have to see. I mean, we're starting from a low bar, but there's a lot of potential there. I think where people have been tuned into what our governments have been doing over the course of the pandemic, here's their opportunity to try and shape what they do going forward.
0: I'm, I'm kind of looking. It's also my my glasses have full sort of an attitude here. Uh, we're going to be voting differently this year. and You mentioned uh, mail-in voting as, as, as I think a, a great example of that. Uh, there were only a couple of hundred thousand I think that voted mail-in last time, and they're expecting maybe over five million votes this time, uh, something astronomical like that. Uh, and 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 I'll, I know some people had some concerns about that. That was a big story, of course, in the in the presidential election back in November. Uh, but it's safe. Uh, it's done, as you mentioned. The uh, Canada Post and Elections Canada have, have worked on this and and it may not you know we may not have the results on election night but most european elections are run like that aren't they peter i mean in germany and france and places like that uh because of those voting systems there it's 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 the the new normal for them to wait it might take a day or so to count all the votes especially the mail-in votes. uh we're not used to that in north america but maybe maybe it's about time we turn the page yeah, I mean,
2: you know, obviously the concern uh for uh, elections integrity is that, you know, the votes in the box get counted. <laughs> how how yep. fast we are in counting the votes really isn't that important. Uh I mean obviously it makes for better television if you can declare the announce, you know, the results at a specific hour of a you know, of the evening broadcast. But yeah, I mean that's often been an argument against different kinds of voting systems. But uh, you know, we saw even in the last municipal elections in Ontario uh, I believe it was, uh, it was at London, Ontario, undertook, uh, you know, a ranked ballot uh, yeah. approach. And, yeah, their results took a few days to come out, but it doesn't seem to have harmed the capacity of their, their municipal government to do their job subsequently. So, yeah, I mean, uh, mail voting uh, is counted differently. It may take a bit longer to verify that, you know, the people who are voting were properly voting and so on and to get their ballots. But uh, I don't think it will cause a great political uh, crisis. Again, if we have to wait uh, a few days to, to see the final
0: results, because there's always been a, a discussion in, in this country about, about electoral reform. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau talked about that the first time he ran for prime minister, uh, and, and you know, there was an attempt. Uh, you could we could argue about how effective the attempt was uh, to try to change that. The parliamentary committee basically just said, forget about it. It's not the right time. But I'm just one. Even increasing a in mail-in ballot might be a baby step in that direction. It maybe open people's minds to maybe there are some other things we could do as well.
2: I suppose <laughs> I mean, I'm not confident. Hope springs eternal, parties, Peter. Uh, <laughs> uh, are pretty, uh, you know, are pretty set in 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 their current ways, and there's you know much stronger arguments against a change in the electoral system than having to to count on the day. But yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't be so stuck in our ways. I mean, we saw again municipally uh, uh, an unwillingness to experiment with different kinds of, of voting, but. Uh, I think with time, you know, we have to continue uh, innovating in our democratic processes because the way we vote now is certainly not the way we voted at confederation where, you know, there was not even a secret ballot.
0: Yeah, I mean we've evolved. Uh, some people could say in the wrong direction, but I mean I, I still remember when the, you know the bars were closed on election day because they were afraid that people under the influence may go and cast a ballot, and they didn't want to have that. I'm not so sure that, that, that it's better the way it is now, but I mean it, the, we have changed in situations like that very quickly. Though one of the other arguments here, and I know that uh, Jagmeet Singh sent a letter to the Governor General. Erin O'Toole has talked about this as well. That she, they feel that she has the right to say no. I'm not going to dissolve Parliament because you don't have a good reason. Uh, and there's a, I guess, a really a constant constitutional debate about that peter as to whether or not she does as the queen's representative i don't think it's ever happened uh, i mean there was a lot of speculation i think you and i talked about it back when uh, stephen harper asked Mikhail john to dissolve parliament uh, that was in light of the, uh, the the three amigos there you know stephan dion and jack layton and gil ducep uh, wanted to form a government and uh, he went and dissolved parliament uh, is it the duty of the gg to simply go along with what the prime minister wants or can the, the she he or she push back
2: Well, I mean, I think uh, what the courts have told us is, uh, you know, ultimately that the uh, fixed election law that we have uh, doesn't bind bind the prime minister and the governor general. So in other words, it was kind of a bad faith law, which said, you know, know, we wouldn't have prime ministers calling elections at their whim, but they wrote a law in a way that actually didn't prevent that. And, you know, uh, Stephen Harper and now Justin Trudeau and many provincial premiers where similar laws are in place have all done that. So... You know, if if the governor general was to refuse that advice, I think it would cause a constitutional crisis, even if, uh, again, uh, the the ministers in Stephen Harper's government, uh, when they were pushing this bill originally federally, were, you know, told the Senate that the governor general should do that (laughs) if if a prime minister did that. But I think the law, uh, you know, would suggest it wouldn't. I mean, in this case, what would happen if the governor general said no? I, I mean, presumably... Uh, Justin Trudeau would say, "Well, then I resign," and I, I don't think either Mr. O'Toole or Mr. Singh could command a majority in the House of Commons to to form an alternative government. So we would end up with an election anyways, but one built around this constitutional crisis of of whether you know the Governor General should deny the request of the democratically elected uh, government. So. Uh, you know, that, I think, is a state of play. We could say that Mr. Singh was, you know, being a bit cheeky and asking for something that he knew was unlikely to be, uh, you know, respon- uh, accepted as a way of signaling the fact that the NDP didn't want this summer election. Um, but I think it, it is worth them going back and saying to our elected representatives who promised us that we'd have this law to, to prevent what's likely to happen this weekend, you know, why did they act in such bad faith and produce a law that wasn't actually binding on the government's?
0: well we shall see Uh, it all starts I guess it's game on uh, as of Sunday afternoon and uh, we'll follow it as it goes along Peter always great to get your perspective thanks so much for the time today have a great weekend and you too Take care, Professor Peter Grave, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is the mindset of the Canadian public as we head to the polls for September 20th? Uh, we as I say, we'll get that confirmed tomorrow. Uh, joining us now is our good friend Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Polling, uh, who has his finger on the pulse of Canadians uh, from coast to coast to coast. Uh, Daryl, great to have you back in the program. Uh, what is the mood of, of the? Are we angry
3: voters? Are we apprehensive voters? What's going on? I think it's the second one, apprehensive. Um, At the moment, uh, it's funny, the last time we asked about do you want a federal election was a a few weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. uh, the only people who wanted it were opposition voters. Uh, The people who wanted to support the Liberal Party were the people who were least likely to support an election campaign. Now, maybe that changes if the Prime Minister's got a good message on Sunday as to why we're doing this, but I, in my entire time of doing this, which is probably close to 35 years, have never seen a situation in which people were so tentative about an election.
0: Is it, is it COVID or are there other circumstances at play here?
3: Well, there's two factors. One of them is uh, COVID, absolutely, particularly as we're going into this fourth wave and people just being confused about how an election would take place. I mean, they can be reassured by the chief electoral officer, but until they experience it, they won't know whether or not it's fair or not. Uh, and then the second thing is exactly why are we doing this? What's the burning question that's confronting the country that requires us to come out of our homes and go to a place where, you know, maybe even a couple of weeks ago, we would never be able to go without a mask or some sort of protection to participate in a process uh, that I don't understand why so we 're in that kind of a situation right now now, typically, what we see in election campaigns is this is a bit the big media story for the first you know couple of days. Why are we having this election at all and trying to get some sense of what the motivation of the government is, particularly you know if they haven 't been defeated or the timing of the election isn 't required due to the elections act uh, and we get over it really quickly i don 't know if it will be that quick this time
0: what about the summer factor we you and i've talked about that in the past that a lot of folks are still in cottage mode and relax they're a little concerned obviously about a fourth wave that's coming up here now but but you know are, are we even ready for this i mean psychologically traditionally it seems to be that people really don't tune into elections until two weeks before the vote
3: yeah and, and we'll probably see that again um and you know uh you know, rumors are, are that it will be called for September the 20th, so we will be mm-hmm. past Labor Day and into into the school year and all that kind of thing. So I think Canadians can absorb all of that. Um, but um, the the real question is whether or not they're going to participate to the same yeah. level that they have in the past. And the reason is because the last two elections in which the Liberals were able to form the government, once with a pretty comfortable majority in 2015, and once by the skin of their teeth uh, back in 2019, they had the historically highest election turnout that we've had this century so since the, the, the this millennium and you know since the year 2000 the highest level um if you go back to stephen harper's majority in 2011 he had the lowest at 61 well, actually second lowest at 61 so what happens is that lower turnout tends to benefit the uh the uh, Uh, The conservatives more than it benefits the liberals so they need to have people motivated and engaged in this campaign in order to win it so it's a dangerous game they're playing right now with their own political prospects
0: it is well it's game on i guess as of sunday anyway and we'll be watching and seeing just what your polling is going to tell us Uh, daryl always a pleasure thanks so much for being with us today thanks bill Okay, take care. Daryl Burker, of course, is the CEO of Ipsos Polling. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, the uh, extradition trial in uh, British Columbia got underway. Well, the Chinese government has weighed in on that, as you might have expected. Uh, China's ambassador to Canada insists that his country's detention of two Canadians is not related to Canada's arrest of uh, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Uh, still, the uh, ambassador, whose name is Chung Pei Wu, says that Meng's arrest is the behest of the United States, remains the main obstacle in good relations between the two countries. Well, our main obstacle in our bilateral relationship is Nadan Meng's incident. And
2: uh, we do urge the Canadian side to reflect on the issue and take uh, actions sooner rather than later to correct mistakes and to release Madame Meng, you know, and to ensure her safe return to China so as to remove the main obstacle between our two countries.
0: So uh, he still maintains that, uh, that that wasn't the reason for the arrest of the two Michaels, yet he seems to be saying this is a condition for their release. Uh, you do the math on that one. But what's happening in the B.C. court right now is is interesting uh, because of the implications that's going on. Uh, to try to give us some perspective on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Anthony Freguli, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad you got some time for us today.
4: My pleasure, Bill. Happy to be on.
0: Well, let's talk about this. Maybe as a scene setter, if we could, who are the players in the courtroom in B.C. right now?
4: Uh, So the two parties are Canada and the counsel for Ms. Mung. But Canada has a special role in extradition proceedings. Essentially, it's the federal government on behalf of the country that's asking for the extradition. So it's Canada on behalf of the United States uh, against uh, Ms. Mung and her counsel.
0: So the United States, although they've made the request here, doesn't have any standing in the court.
4: Correct. And and this is just generally how our extradition law works. Uh, the, one of the parties in this has to be the government and they have to take up uh, the cause for the country that's asking for the individual to be uh, extradited to them. So that's that's standard procedure in, in every extradition case.
0: It is I just want to get the background on that. Uh, is this because it's a Canadian court, it has to be a, a Canadian representing a, and that that side, or uh, you, you think since the United States made the request that they, some somebody from their Justice Department would be there, uh, they may be there as a spectator, but they can't actually take part in the in the proceedings.
4: Correct. It's got to be the government of Canada because uh, it, it's it's extraditions are the result of agreements between two countries, and as mm-hmm. part of those agreements, uh, Canada agrees to uh, extradite somebody or seek the extradition of somebody through their court system on behalf of another country. And the same would happen if Canada was seeking an extradition, uh, say for example, from the United States, if there was an individual in the United States uh that canada wanted extradited for prosecution uh uh the i believe it's the federal government of the united states it wouldn't be the individual states but the federal government in the united states would appear in federal court uh and make that uh, uh motion on behalf of canada
0: uh we just to remind our listeners that uh, the attorney general himself is actually not present in the court. as a matter of fact he was just on our program about an hour ago but uh, he's in ottawa right now his representative is is uh, one robert freighter who was a lawyer for the attorney general who is presenting the case if you could andrew give us a little inside baseball here uh did the canadian representatives in this case mr freighter i guess who's the lead on this uh do they consult with the americans in other words how do they get the talking points to to, to raise the issues and and to present their arguments
4: so they have to, they have to uh, uh, deal with the Americans because it's the Americans uh, who essentially put forward the information that goes into the record. Uh, the American authorities will give uh, to Canada uh, the setting out exactly what laws uh, that Ms. Mung or anybody they're seeking to extradite uh, is alleged to have breached and the evidence that they have to satisfy the test on extradition, which is uh, some evidence upon which someone could be convicted. Uh, once the Canadian government gets that from the American government, uh, they would put it together in a record uh, and, uh, and, and that would be the basis of the application before the court. So they'd be working, supposed to be working quite closely with American uh, prosecutors.
0: Uh, Associate Chief Justice uh, Heather Holmes of uh, BC Supreme Court is actually hearing this case, uh, and I, I I know a little bit about what goes on because I actually would watch from time to time Andrew on Saturday mornings on the Parliamentary Channel the Supreme Court hearings even if I don't you know have a full understanding of the issues I, the the methodology and the presentation is, is fascinating to watch uh, as you see the back and forth and the way the justices interact uh, with the two representatives in situations like this so with that in mind and the fact that you're going to expect a little pushback uh, you know as as they're starting. A hearing like this, uh, your, your read on and what the, the justice actually said. Uh, I'll paraphrase it. She said she had a, a great deal of trouble trying to understand exactly what the charges are and whether or not they're even valid. This is like on the first or second day of the hearing, uh, suggesting that she didn't think the U.S. had explained the essence of the crime that they are alleging that Mung had committed.
4: Yeah, and it's it's an interesting and fascinating dialogue from an extradition perspective because usually this is the sort of part. Uh, that nobody's going to argue about. So, for example, if someone's alleged to have committed murder, uh, you know very well what that crime is, you understand what that crime is, you move on to whether there's enough evidence to extradite the person. Here, the government uh, on behalf of the United States seems to be having trouble with that initial part of the test, which is, can you clearly enumerate what the crime is um, and would it be analogous to a crime here? That's the key to this opening part of the extradition analysis. What is it that the person is alleged to have done that's broken the law? And is it the sort of thing that would be recognized as a crime in Canada as well? And it seems that uh, the American government is having trouble explaining through the Canadian representatives for the the associate chief justices um, uh, in her eyes, they're having trouble explaining what it is uh, that Hmong that is alleged to have done regarding business with Iran that would have run afoul of the sanctions uh, uh, that America put on dealing
0: with Iran. And, and there are some financial things here too about the hsbc and other places like this but another quote from uh, the justice here uh she says what i don't understand is whether the simple fact of dealing with the government in iran would be viewed as offside and and i i guess as a follow up to that uh she's saying are, are are you implicating that all business people in iran are crooked is that what you're suggesting and and it, it's it's interesting the tack she's taking on this it's it's not as if she's presenting the counter argument here but she's simply probing isn't she
4: yeah, she's just pointing out what she sees are uh, on their face flaws with the, with the government's argument and, and specifically what the violation is. And, and it's the sort of thing where you would think um, uh, that the government would be able to spell out quite clearly what in this case the business would be that makes it uh, breach the sanctions that has made Ms. Mung breach the sanctions. So um, it, it's interesting uh, from from a legal perspective uh, that this is where the the hearing seems to have been hung up on on the first day or so
0: well and, and... <laughs> How does that affect the outcome and how does that affect the presentation more importantly? Because the, the presentation is going to have some sort of an impact on this. Uh, when, when in this case, Mr. Freider, who's representing the Attorney General's office, uh, not necessarily admonished by the justice, but, uh, you know, asking some questions that, uh, that are basically kind of poking holes in the initial argument like this. Uh, that, that's kind of like getting a touchdown scored on you in the first minute. I mean, do, do you, how do you recover from that and how do you pr- go forward on that? Knowing the mindset of the justice.
4: Um, I think from, from the government lawyer's point of view, um, you're always looking at this as, as not so much that these are hurdles you can't overcome, but uh, it's a hurdle in this case, uh, in these sorts of cases, that you don't frequently have to jump, and they're doing it. And I, I think you put it quite well, Bill, that it, these are more probing questions. I, and oftentimes, judges, when they're asking these questions, it's, it's not to score points on the counsel who's in front of them, but, but it's because they genuinely have an issue um having read through the record and and they want their assistance counsel at the end of the day are there to uh, assist the judge in making a decision by presenting an argument and here uh, the associate chief justice is looking at the record they're not clear on it based on the written record and so uh, they're doing what you're supposed to be doing in oral submissions as a judge and what you hope they're going to do as a judge, which is say to counsel, look, I'm going to be upfront with you here. I've got an issue. I can't really see on this first branch of the extradition test, uh, uh, what is alleged to have been the offending conduct. Can you help me out?
0: And and she's, Implicating, I think that she says she sees a contradiction here uh, between what they thought happened and, and what they're actually accusing or alleging that happened. Uh, she says, as far as sanction violations are concerned, uh, you know, they assured the bank and Huawei was in charge. And she does. I, I, it's almost as if she's saying, "I don't see the crime here. You better explain yourself." Uh, and and the, the only retort that I uh, we heard from Mr. Freyder uh, after lunch when they came back and said they'd have an answer for it was, "I don't see the conflict." Uh, but the but the justice does i mean uh, that's that means you're kind of on shaky ground here doesn't it
4: yeah and 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 unless a better answer comes forward the real risk for the government lawyers is that uh, ms mung's lawyers are going to come on the back of it and they're going to exploit this uh when they get the chance to respond and and they may be looking at this and saying uh you know where they had been ready to make a number of submissions on the strength of the evidence you may want to sort of change your tactics uh uh, midstream here and now focus on this first branch of the extradition issue and and really go to town on why there is a conflict why the the clarity hasn't been resolved and and i think you'll see them likely lead off with this and and really try to uh, at the very least increase the judge's confusion on the issue
0: Uh, and i'll ask you to call on your your vast experience in the courts, Andrew, uh, because we need to remind our listeners as well. Uh, th- don't read too much into this. That uh, Oh, my God, the justice is, is favoring uh, the Hmong side like this. i I, I got to assume, and again, from what little I know from watching Supreme Court hearings on TV, uh, she'll be just as probing and just as, as, as intricate when she starts questioning the Hmong team as well.
4: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think for your listeners, the other point to, to remember is um, extraditions almost invariably are approved. Um, there are very rare cases where the government, uh, or excuse me, where a court intervenes and says we're not extraditing the individual. Um, but the test is set up to be a very low hurdle for the government to uh, to jump over because there's a real interest um, uh, in the idea that between nations, people who do something in one country and then flee to another should be sent back. It's it's something we expect if someone commits a crime here and flees uh, and it's something other countries expect of us. So uh, winning an extradition from the defense point of view is exceedingly rare. Um, now there's some profile to this and, and I'm happy that people are engaging with this and seeing the justice engage with the issue in this way. Um, but the defense still has a long road ahead of them just based on um, how low the test is and, and sort of the principles animating why uh, the government has such a low hurdle.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the takeaway from this. thing. This is early days, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot to go here. You
4: know, it, it, as a defense lawyer, if people... Um, just judged what they thought the outcome was going to be based on the first few questions the Crown got, I'd have won a lot more cases than I have. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's the judge's job to put both parties through their paces if they're unclear about something. And the Associate Chief Justice here is doing just that. And I think those who um, are watching this closely will see that she has many, many similar questions for the defense and for their arguments.
0: Well, and I think you know, you, I probably put both sides notice, didn't she? Because when she, before she started this line of questioning, uh, she, I guess she warned both sides. She says, I don't intend to sit here as a rubber stamp. Uh, so I, what sh- what's good for this side is probably good for, for this side too. I, I would think, and the, the Hmong defense are probably watching this, and as much as they may kind of like the fact that the questioning is going the way it is, uh, they better sharpen their, their act too to make sure, because she, she's coming after them too to shoot holes in that if there are any.
4: Yeah, and, and you know, it's just, Uh, judges are as varied as 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 people are Uh, some judges are very stoic on the bench they don't ask many questions um, or they sit through cases where they have a very good uh, grasp based on the written materials and you don't get much uh, back and forth with them some judges however are very very questioning um, and and your submissions as planned as they are will often uh, detour because the judges questionings questioning is leading you uh, to where they have issues with the argument so uh, in this case the justice is um, I, I would say quite um, quite engaging with questions and and that's not surprising given quite frankly the the complexity of this case um, and the attention that's being paid on it and and I think this is one of those cases where um, it's rare that extradition cases get this sort of scrutiny um, and I think it's a good thing that the associate chief justices um, uh, is being very careful here, uh, is probing the arguments and, and uh, probing counsel. And uh, it, it's, it's good to see from a, a sort of a, a justice perspective for people watching.
0: When the process is over here, uh, and, and both sides have made their presentations, closing arguments, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what happens then? D- does the justice render the decision immediately, or is is the case in so many other trials that we've seen? And I know this is not a trial. It's, it's a hearing. Uh, you know, they take some time to go over all the records of what was said and not said. Is, is there going to be a, a period of time there where we're not going to know exactly what the decision is?
4: Almost invariably. Almost like I I would, I would bet a significant amount of money that there would be a a somewhat lengthy delay after the argument is done, for the justice to uh, uh, reserve on her decision and then uh, release a decision at some time. We will, we likely will not be getting a decision in this case in weeks and weeks. Um, And then, if depending on which way it goes, the saga isn't over because there are rights of appeal from the extradition decision. um, And I would bet either way. Um, that there's likely to be an appeals process here.
0: Exactly. Andrew, uh, complicated, and as you say, a very, very important hearing going on with huge implications. So glad you had some time today to talk to us about it.
4: Always happy to come on. Good talking to you, Bill.
0: Take care. Have a great weekend. Andrew Fugarelli, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, a criminal lawyer, a defense lawyer, who's uh, got a lot of experience in the courtroom. Great to get that perspective and some clarity there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.